Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. My guest today on Dan's Talks is our local state assemblyman, Fred Thiel, who has been in office for so many years. I don't even remember when he first came in, but he's been witness to uh, many of the changes that have gone on in the Hamptons and on the North Fork over the years. And I thought since we both go back quite a distance to ask him. Uh, so first of all, welcome to the podcast, Fred. Thank you, Dan, and, and Happy New Year. And it's, uh, it's good to see you. I hope this is a, a, a real good one. We'll soon see. Anyway, what, what would you think are some of the great achievements that the state and other government officials uh, that you've seen and done yourself or with others or just by watching what's going on? Since we both got out here, I would think one of the first major changes was when we, when the County Executive Klein, I think he was, was um, founded the uh, uh, program that saved the farmland from having higher taxes by buying the development rights. That was a long time ago. And it may sound a little boring to start that way, but it was a big deal. What was the result of that? And what have you seen happen since? Well, you know, County Executive John Klein was, uh, you know, goes back to the 1970s and, uh, you know, ironically uh, just passed away in the, in the last week or so. And, uh, you know, one of the things, one of his great achievements was the Suffolk County Farmland Preservation Program. And that, that program goes back to 1975 when it was first instituted and uh, was pressed by a, a lot of East Enders, obviously a program that was a big benefit to the East End. You know, a lot of Western Suffolk by the 1970s had lost a lot of their farmland. Nassau County had lost a lot of their farmland. And uh, a young attorney by the name of Russell Stein, who I think we both know was, uh, was the East Hampton town attorney for a while, had this idea about purchasing the development rights. So that land could stay in agriculture, but that the farmers could get their equity out of the land. And uh, that farmland preservation program, that's when really I think was the first wave of, of uh, development pressure on the East End for, you know, that we were seeing was in the 1970s. And that really was the first of many preservation programs was the county farmland preservation program. I think that's when we realized that open space farmland um, you know, the rural character of the East End was under was going to be under pressure and that we had to do things about it. And John Klein with the Farmland Preservation Program was one of the, the very first proposals that became law that helped to protect our unique quality of life here on the East End. What happened since? 
Well, a lot. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, first was, was farmland preservation. And then we realized that there were other forms of open space that we wanted to protect. So the, the county started a, an open space preservation program. Uh, a, a quarter percent of the sales tax was was devoted to uh, protecting the pine barrens and protecting water quality. You know, what's unique about Long Island is we get our drinking water from underground aquifers. And what happens above the land affects our drinking water. So, you know, first it was farmland, then it was open spaces, and then uh, the pine barrens. And, uh, uh, you know, there was always this battle between the East End and the West End about getting resources for these things on the East End. But, you know, it was an argument that we were able to successfully make. So, you know, a lot of this was initiated on the county level, uh, open space preservation, things like the Long Pond Greenbelt that runs from Sag Harbor to Sagaponic were preserved as part of the county open space program. And then of course the Pine Barrens, over 100,000 acres were ultimately preserved in the Pine Barrens. And, We've, we've built upon that step by step. I think probably the one thing that I'm uh, most involved with and probably, uh, you know, is will be the first paragraph of my obituary when it comes, hopefully no time soon, but will be the Community Preservation Fund because we knew for a long time that we needed to preserve our community character or rural character. But the question was, would we have enough money to do it? I, I always remember Fred uh, going to a meeting where a developer was proposing a, a, a residential uh, community lot, large scale lot on farmland. And uh, at that time, there was no money. And we were and we were uh, sitting there and we were telling him we had to be so many acres and uh, but we really wanted to save it. We didn't want to see it developed. And he got up and he he said, well, then buy it. Go ahead. Let's see you buy it. And then he left. Yeah, and, I, and that, that was the situation we were in is that uh, development was outpacing conservation. You know, every once in a while, we'd, we'd, there would be a state bond act. We'd get some money from that or we'd have a local bond act. And, we, you know, we'd buy a piece of open space here or open space there, but we didn't have the resources that conservation could keep pace with development. And that's where the Peconic Bay Community Preservation Fund came in, uh, a dedicated fund, a 2% real estate transfer tax on every, uh, on every uh, real estate uh, transfer that happens. And there've been a lot of them in the East End. And, and that was instituted in 1998, so it's been in effect now. We're going on our 24th year. It's generated more than $1.7 billion, and we've been able to preserve over 10,000 acres across the East End. And since, uh, what, is, what has been going on more recently that uh, you, has been a big saving? Has there been anything since that time? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, the focus, uh, I, I'd say the, the biggest shift has been, you know, whether it was in the 1970s with John Klein or, you know, open space preservation with, the, you know, the county planner, Lee Koppelman or the Pine Barrens, always focused on land. You know, we needed to preserve land. And 
what we had hoped was that by preserving land, it would protect our drinking water, protect our bays, protect our creeks, you know, all of our, our surface waters too. And I, I think the biggest transition that's occurred in the last 12 years is that we don't, we don't just need to worry about the land, but we also have to devote resources to protecting water. And you know we've seen it, whether it was the brown tide that started in the 1990s, now it's, it, it's like a Crayola coloring box. There's, you know, there's been brown tide, red tide, bronze tide, all of these different tides. The bottom line is, is that they, you know, they, they're all a function of declining water quality. And you know, we have less area available for shell fishing. Uh, you know, it's had an impact on our commercial fishing industry. And so I think, you know, the big transition in the last 10 years has been, yes, we need to preserve land, but we also need to protect our waters. And, you know, devoting resources to things like upgrading septic systems, not the sexiest government program you'll ever hear of, you know, is upgrading the, you know, the cesspool to a, a septic system that removes nitrogen, but nitrogen has been the enemy. And so, you know, in efforts with regard to preservation, you know, we're still doing land preservation, but we've added the need for water quality projects, removing nitrogen. You know, I passed a bill this year that would allow kelp farming because kelp takes nitrogen out of the water also. So I, I would say that, you know, the, the biggest transition is not just worrying about the land, but worrying also about the water and realizing that, you know, whatever we put into the water in the way of whether it's septic waste or fertilizers or pesticides is really having an adverse impact on us. And, you know, our economy really is dependent on the, our environment and, you know, good quality water, whether it be groundwater or surface water. So I think, you know, that's what we focused on certainly in the most recent years has been water quality. So, you know, as far as preservation efforts go, you know, land preservation and now water quality protection and improving water quality, reversing the trend of, of declining water quality, I think has been at the forefront. Well, I think, you know, what else has happened? I think there has been a shift in the uh, ability of the towns to spend some of these uh, uh, real estate tax dollars into creating new parks, not just farmlands, but uh, and, and, and you see so, much, so many little projects that are, if you think about people coming out here and wanting to see things, and especially in the last five or 10 years, there has been a tremendous growth in the number of sorts of things that you can see that are generic to our community. I'm talking about uh, the the artist studios that have opened up with the money Steinbeck Park, with the money uh, in Southampton, the uh, barber shop saving the uh, historic uh, projects there, and it's just wonderful to see that there's lots to be to be uh, seen. Now, you know, and you know, I think that's a great point, uh, Dan. We, you know, a, a, in the beginning, a lot of the community preservation fund money was focused on farmland preservation. On the North Fork, it still is focused on farmland preservation because they still have a lot of farmland that needs to be protected. But on the South Fork, 
farmland, open space. But now, as you mentioned, some people don't realize that historic preservation is a part of that, whether it's, you know, you mentioned the Southampton African American Museum, which is the old barbershop, uh, you know, the reconstruction of, of the Sag Harbor Cinema and that historic facade in Sag Harbor after the fire. And uh, so historic preservation is, is also an important part of our community character. And, you know, and it's just not, you know, from, from the 1600s when Europeans got here, but that money has, been, has gone to help uh, the Shinnecock Indian Nation preserve some of their burial grounds. That was a big project last year between the town of Southampton, the Peconic Land Trust and the Shinnecocks to preserve that land. And as I mentioned, you know, we're, we're starting to use 20%, up to 20% of that money for water quality also. So yeah, the Community Preservation Fund, it used to just largely be about open space, but now, you know, historic preservation, uh, cultural resources, you know, our, our role as an, as an uh, as arts and culture here on the East End. And as I mentioned before, also talking about water quality. It's been quite remarkable. And and uh, a lot of it is you're doing, and I'm personally very feel very indebted to you for all of the service you've uh, put in to this community. And how did you decide you wanted to uh, uh, go into public service? Uh, you were trained as a lawyer in private practice, or I know you became the uh, Sag Harbor uh, uh, legal advisor for a time. Tell us a bit about where you came from, how you came out here, and and uh, and how you decided this is how you wanted to spend your life. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in Sag Harbor. I've been in Sag Harbor my entire life. My uh, my parents graduated from Pearson High School. I graduated from Pearson High School. My children graduated from Pearson High School. High School. There's one branch of the family tree in Sag Harbor that goes back to uh, to the whaling days. You know, part of my heritage is. Uh, I have an ancestor that lived in the Azores, came from the Azores, got on a whaling ship in the Azores, came to Sag Harbor and never left. And then, you know, on my mother's side, uh, Polish-American, my father's side, for the most part, was a German-American, came, you know, their, their ancestors, you know, except for that one branch of the whaling family came, you know, over in the late 1800s. But, uh, you know, for me in politics, I grew up in the 1960s. So... You know, things like, uh, you know, President Kennedy and public service and the civil rights movement, uh, you know, from the time I was 10 years old, I was interested in politics. Nobody in my family was interested in, was uh, in politics. My father always talked about politics, you know, in, you know, over the dinner table and things of that nature. But, you know, when I was 10 years old, it was 1964. And, uh, you know, I was a bit of a political nerd even back then. I went down to the local political headquarters and got a Bobby Kennedy for New York Senator bumper sticker and put it on my bicycle. So, uh, you know, there weren't, weren't many uh, kids that had political bumper stickers, I guess, on their bicycle. So it was something I was always interested in. And probably, you know, a turning point for me when I realized it was really what I wanted to do is... You know, when I was a junior at Southampton College, I got an internship in the New York State Assembly. And I that internship, that's when I knew that uh, government and politics was what I was interested in. I, I came back home after law school and worked for 
John Behan, who just passed away about a year ago. John Behan from Montauk was my predecessor. I worked for John for many, many years. So I went to law school, but I was always interested in politics. I figured if the if the politics thing didn't really work out, I, I could at least could practice law. But politics and government have always been my my first love. And I start I was able to come back and John Behan gave me my start. I'll, I'll never for, forget him. And I, I am indebted to him forever for uh, letting me come back home, number one, and, and to uh, uh, get started in my career in government. And from there, I was first I was a Suffolk County legislator for a for about four years, the job that Bridget Fleming has now. And then I was Southampton Town Supervisor for a couple of terms. But as you mentioned, it's been a long time now, since 1995, you know, uh, over 25 years, I've represented uh, uh, the South Fork and Shelter Island and part of Brookhaven in the New York State Assembly. So yeah. I think I knew from an early age, this is what I wanted to do. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to do it. One of the... Uh... Most shocking things that I, I'm not from here. I grew up in New Jersey and came here when I was 16 in the uh, mid 50s. And uh, one of the things that was a total shock to me was to see uh, Seg Harbor at that time, which was so beautiful and such a, a wonderful old village uh, with so many abandoned little houses. It was actually on, on the ropes uh, when you were growing up. Uh, and uh, there was the sandbar, and there was a noon whistle, and there was some manufacturing going on. What was your father uh, and mother? What were the, how were they employed in Sag Harbor? Yeah, well, you know, Sag Harbor was a factory town, and you know, we had the Boulevard Watch Case Factory. We had originally it was Agawam, and then it got taken over by Grumman on the waterfront. Uh, there was uh, Row Industries, which later became Aurora Plastics. So. In the 50s and 60s, Sag Harbor was a factory town. It was a real blue collar town. You know, I, it was sometimes it was called the Unhampton Sag Harbor because it was so much so unlike, uh, you know, Southampton and Easthampton. So that's where I, you know, I grew up. My, my dad worked. He was the dairy manager in Bohax. And that's how I can tell if people have been around here for a while. Uh, if they, if I mention Bohax and they know what I'm talking about, I know that they've been in the area for a while. Bohax was the kind of the King Cullen of, of the, the 50s and 60s. It was a grocery store chain. And my dad worked as, uh, you know, for most of the time, he worked in some of the different stores, but most of the time he worked in East Hampton in, uh, in, in the building which now houses Citarella there right on the... Uh, the corner. So he, he worked uh, in a grocery store and uh, my mom worked in the Boulevard Watch Case factory. Uh, uh, she uh, was a, a diamond setter. She would set the diamonds in, into the watch cases for the uh, kind of the high end watches that, that Boulevard made. So, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was kind of a, a blue collar upbringing and, uh, you know, Sag Harbor was such a great place to grow up in. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I, I only half kid when, you know, over Christmas, I posted a picture of Sag Harbor after we got that brief snow on Christmas Eve and said, it's not Bedford Falls, but uh, uh, it is a wonderful life. But, it, you know, it's that it was a, the kind of town where people really cared for each other. And uh, it was a great place to grow up in. Well, they still do. And they uh, oddly, I think it's rather odd uh, 
Here is a whaling town. There are only four major whaling towns in America, Lahaina, New Bedford, Nantucket. And yet the heritage that they chosen to save is early post-war. It's from the 40s. And I guess it's the last vestige of uh, that they had that they could uh, hang on to. It meant a lot. Sag Harbor is a little bit of everything. You're right. I mean, you know, uh, one of the historic sites is the cinema and that facade from, uh, you know, from the 1930s and the 1940s. But Sag Harbor is also a federally recognized historic district. You, you know, you've got the captain's houses on Main Street and, you know, there's a lot of history in Sag Harbor. People focus on on the whaling, we've got the whaling museum, the, the, the school sports teams, the nickname is the Pearson Whalers. There's a lot of focus on that period, but uh, you know, there, there was the, uh, the whaling period, but then there was, you know, the, the factory period, which, uh, you know, after whaling died, there was a depression in Sag Harbor and then the factories came. And then in the sixties and seventies, those factories went out of business also. And now, you know, Sag Harbor has basically been rediscovered. You know, you know, Dan, when, you know, the, a lot of the people I grow up with, they say, they, they say you know, Sag Harbor, it, it was better in the good old days, but what you say is right. And what? that is in the, in the 70s, a lot of those historic houses were falling down. About yeah. every third stored front in the 1970s was vacant. And, uh, you know, Sag Harbor rediscovered itself for the, I like to say there's three periods. There was the whaling period, the factory period, and now, you know, I kind of, I think the, the, the genesis of that was John Steinbeck moving to Sag Harbor. It became kind of a center for the, uh, for writers and artists and, uh, you know, uh, culture. And, you know, you see that now, you see that with the cinema, you see it with Bay Street, April Gornick's, the church there, the old Methodist church. Uh, so, you know, it, it's become a, 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 a very popular you know, uh, second home area where, where, where people come, uh, not just for the summer, but, you know, year round. But I, I think if I was going to point to one thing about Sag Harbor that sets it apart is the, the focus on, uh, on the arts, on, on uh, you know, when I go, you mentioned the, the sandbar, there was the Black Bowie, the Whalers Bar, Sal and Joe's. I think there were more bars on Main Street than anything else. But now it's, you know, art galleries. And I think what makes Sag Harbor special also is, you know, it's got a real Main Street. It, you know, it's not just the Ralph Lawrence that you, you see in East Hampton or, you know, all of the, you know, the, 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 uh, the national brands that you see in, in, the, in the Hamptons. But, you know, you've got the wharf shop and uh, hardware stores. It's, uh, you know, it's a real Main Street. And I think, you know, it's it's that that quirky combination of things that all come from Sag Harbor's history that make it special that people are still trying to protect. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast. We try and keep them to 20 minutes and we could go on and on and on, I think. And well, thank you for letting me talk a little bit about my hometown. I, you know, I love Sag Harbor and uh, it's a special place. Thank you. To Fred Thiel, our state assemblyman. And uh, thanks again. Thanks and happy new year to you, Dan, and to everybody out there. Thanks. Bye.